It doesn't take much for a manager to take an artist with momentum and turn it into something bigger. It's easy to push a car that's already in neutral, but of course it's very hard to push a car if it's stuck in park. The rare skill few managers have is taking artists with absolutely no fan base and turning them into artists that can actually make a living off radio hits and touring. That is the skill that Andrew Stone has perfected to a science. He has worked for over a decade with Australian industry great Michael Chug, as well as global giant Scooter Braun. Andrew signed artists like Shepard early in their career and got them to five times platinum in Australia and two times platinum in America. He also signed Lime Cordial, who virtually had no radio play for the first eight years of their career, but they were still able to sell out venues all over the country and rack up countless gold records. Andrew has just launched City Pop Records, a 50-50 partnership with Michael Chug, where they both manage and act as a label for Australian pop stars. Their mission? They take pop artists from a standing start and make them global superstars. Andrew Stone, welcome. Thanks, brother. Nice to be here. It is actually very good to have you. You're the first uh, person I'm interviewing face-to-face during COVID. It's a fucking huge relief. We're a good distance apart, so it's okay. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're social distancing, but <laughs> I think Michael behind the camera is probably the most relieved because he doesn't have to edit out lag and shit. Yeah, good. <laughs> Andrew, tell me about City Pop Records. Yeah, I, I guess it's been an idea I've been sitting on for a couple of years now, but uh, the last 12 months uh, we've been going pretty strong with it. Um, our first signing, Mia Rodriguez, uh, we're starting to get some some cut through with her at the moment. She's uh, kind of number one most played on Triple J, which was a big um, big achievement for us, especially the pop part of the name of the of the of the label uh, was really geared towards making cool, credible pop um, that has a life outside of Australia uh, primarily. We've really been thinking from the start with this to to take it global, um, but the general thought process behind it was um, I was down at VidCon in, in Melbourne and um, there as a guest of YouTube and seeing all these creators that had lines of like 500 kids just out the, out the auditorium trying to meet them and, um, and the disconnect between that and some of, the, you know, some of the indie conferences that were happening around Australia was staggering. I mean, fans, uh, young fans in particular, were so into everything that these creators were doing um, and a lot of them were attempting to cross over to a music career and attempting and, and this has happened around the world as well. Um, so I thought that there was a gap in the market and something that we could you know, make the most of in terms of pairing what we have done well over the last decade or so uh, and this new generation of creators and, and artists coming through. So that was the genesis of it at least. It's, uh, it's really interesting you mentioned that. And was there any, I mean, that success you've had on Triple J's is pretty impressive considering the fact that you look at an artist like Troy Sivan who almost had a same you know history as the artist that you're talking about signing mm. and the massive following that he accumulated on YouTube and on the internet almost worked at his detriment and they just he simply didn't get any support from alternative radio Triple J it was it was seen as a I guess it was seen as uncool so how, how did you overcome that? And did you have that worry when you started signing these artists? Yeah, definitely. But again, Triple J wasn't our end goal with this. Um, and I think Troy obviously is doing well regardless of, of the radio support. And I think he was already on billboards when his first couple of songs came out. So I think from Triple J's point of view, they would have seen it and said, well, like this isn't really the home or the starting and the breeding ground uh, for for Troy. Um, whereas with Mia and, and the other acts, we've 
really wanted to embrace that and embrace like Aussie music culture as the starting point because I think that that is, is something that helps build you know really long careers and live touring and the rest as well. Tell me about how you set up the label with Chuggy. Uh, so you were working for him originally, right? Yeah, so I've been with Chuggy since uh, the start of 2012, actually. And um, the label, we've got our own label, Chug Music, which is the one that Lime Cordial and Shepherd we do art of services uh, for them. Um, but we've actually got a, a third partner in there as well who's a, a private investor. Um, so the idea was let's see if we can raise some money. Um, we've got a partnership with Believe Digital as well. Um, and that uh, that process is simply um, let's see if we can invest in these artists uh, from an A and R point of view and a marketing point of view at the stage of their career that they kind of need it the most, which is that breakthrough moment. Um, so that's, it's it's kind of the way that we do other things. It's just we've really carefully looked to brand it this way and um, and have that investment pool there for these artists at this stage of the career, as opposed to them having to go on the Voice or sign to a major or or you know mortgage their house to not that they have a house, but mortgage something to um, to try and get that startup capital, which um, I think is the, the role of some labels to provide at that early stage. So can you unpack what the role of a label actually is? Because you guys manage as well as mm. are the label for these artists. So, you know, what's the difference? Like why are, you, why are you doing both firstly and what do you see as the distinct difference in roles? Well, I think you're right. I think what's the difference is the question that we had for ourselves as well. It's like if you look at it all in the same pot as – the whole point of music industry is to partner with artists and provide the the yin to their yang of the things that they aren't, aren't able to do themselves. And I think I tend to look at labels in three different categories and um, and the good labels do all three. So you've got investment, which is providing the, the startup capital, if you like, to invest in masters, to make video clips, to do video shoots, that kind of thing. Um, you've got the creative expertise or the, the marketing expertise or industry expertise which is another big part of it. You might sign to a label because they've done you know, big things before and they've got a great team and they've got a great marketing team. And you've also got the branding side of things. I think artists generally will look at a label like Future Classic, for instance, and go, that's a really cool label I want to be on because it's got the coolest artists that live in the ecosystem that I want to play in. And if we can set up a value proposition for, for, an art, for a new artist and say um, – you know, we can provide that startup capital. We've got the expertise, and it's a cool place for you to you know, tell your friends you signed to this label. Then I think that that's the type of offering that we'll, we'll we'll take to market. Is there a conflict of interest between managing an artist and also signing them to the label? Yeah, I can see that argument. Um, we do our best to uh, acknowledge that conflict. Um, I think as managers, we want uh, we we want to put forward the best possible case to deliver what we say we're going to do. And that involves investment on our behalf. I think that we um, should be remunerated for that fairly, just like any label would, if that makes sense. Um, Provided we are substantially providing those additional services that might might fall outside of that management remit. Um, But the other thing as well is like when we come to the artist, we'll present both uh, cases and they might go for one or the other or they might have a manager already and that's okay as well. Um, What I don't want to have happen is for us to – you know, pick up an artist and their manager is, you know, just one of their friends or someone who doesn't really know how to navigate the space at that early stage of their career and for that to, you know, detrimentally impact on the artist's future and therefore our investment. So, you know, if we've got a capable team that's that's a big team or, you know, relatively speaking with management companies, I think we can make that offering and at the same time make a case for investing in the masters as well. 
So if you had an artist come to you with a manager and they were a very skilled manager, you would have no problem signing them to the label? Oh, that'd be a, a massive advantage. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Would you, and does that mean you'd walk away from an artist if you weren't confident in the manager that they had? Um, I think that's a decision that labels make all the time. And um, it's it's a tough one because you, know, you also want to support young, young managers on their way up and uh, perhaps we can provide a, a learning ground for them as well. Um, for, for at least with our experience and and if they see that as advantageous or if they've got the right attitude or if they've got the right belief in their artist then um, we'll certainly consider that um, but at the same time we've seen the other side of the coin as well quite a lot uh, being you know artists in that early stage of the career potentially held back by managers that are just chucking on a suit jacket trying to look cool and um, you know sign a, a deal for as much money as they can get and with no real plan uh, to follow it up and, and actually execute what they say they're going to do you started as a manager by yourself and then you eventually signed with Chug and started working with Chug as a manager under his entity. Mm-hmm. Um, now, obviously, you're a co-owner and co-founder of this new company. But going back to that decision to join with Chug, was that one of the reasons? Because you wanted to ensure that when you were going out there as a young and experienced manager, you had the experience and backing behind you? Um, I think when you partner with someone... You partner for a bunch of different reasons, and the the main thing that I wanted to do with uh, with Chuggy back in the day when we we first started working together was learn from his fifty years in the business. And there's a certain ingredient that Michael has that I didn't realize at the time, but there was something about him that led to his you know enduring success. And I didn't know what that was, but I knew it was there. So I think a big part of it was to you know be in the building and learn from the you know the people that are coming in and out of Chug Entertainment. Um, the way that Michael holds himself, his relationships, his uh, his experience and judgment—they're um, all—they're all the intangibles that are pretty hard to put a price on in terms of like doing that initial that initial partnership that we had. Um, at the same time, um, you know, there was security there for me as a as a younger manager um, to be able to take a longer term approach to the way that we developed artists like Shepard and Lime Cordial that perhaps. Um, you know, managers at the early stages of the career, they've got to work additional jobs, they've got to do other things. So um, I was able to say to Chuggy, look, I, I'm in this, I've, I've done X, Y, Z, I've got, you know, this this other company and I've got this experience in the industry. Uh, I want to learn from you and um, help you grow your vision for your, um, you know, this this arm of the business. Um, how can we, how can our forces join up, if, if you like? Like my youth and enthusiasm and perhaps... Uh, you know, attention to the the things that are coming up and the trends, um, but partner that with the armor that Chuggy, someone like Chuggy, can provide you. If I'm out there trying to make some bold decisions about should we, you know, keep our artists independent in Australia and really work hard to finding partnerships internationally, um, you know, that that got under people's skin a little bit. Um, but Chuggy was there defending it and you know being a champion for it the whole the whole way. Um, so that really gave me some some breadth to operate in those early stages. And we were able to make bold decisions with, with a band like Shepherd, for instance, like when those early songs started to really break on radio, every label wanted to sign them at that, at that point. But we kept the faith and we had great partners with MGM and our press teams that we were able to, you know, continue them forward, even at that top commercial level uh, and keep their independence in that. And I think at the time everyone had, um, doubts about whether you could have a commercial hit uh, and retain your independence, um, but we were able to do it. Uh, I think the partnership with Chug 
gave a lot of legitimacy to the ideas that I had uh, coming through as well. Andrew, you went from employee at Chug to co-owner of this new venture. And I think Chug probably experienced the same problem with you that most people running a management company do is that you train up these managers, you sign them, and then they are, they they become so good that it doesn't make commercial sense for them to stay anymore and they need to go out and do their own thing, yeah. which is probably the crossroads you're at, I'm guessing. So eventually Chug agreed to bring you in as a 50-50 partner or, or you agreed that you would start a 50-50 venture with him. What was going through your mind at that time? What were your decisions? And then how did you then negotiate that deal with Chuggy? I mean, that, that deal was a few years in the making as well. Like we'd always always spoken about it. Um, and I think, at you know, for both of us, we needed to be generous in terms of what we were willing to accept or, or willing to explore in terms of an option. Um, you know, I'm very loyal to Michael and my future was always trying to do what was... I guess fair for both of us, but definitely my first preference is always let, let's see if we can work something out with Michael. And I think just like the the eight years of sweat equity in there as well was something that Michael considered um, in you know forming a longer term partnership um, on this. And at the same time that he was in um, conversations with Frontier and Gadinsky about the entertainment side of the business, um, the Chug Music side of the business wasn't included in that. So there was a it was like everything was on the table. We had to make a decision whether that would. We had the backing of the entertainment side of the business, and then, you know, it's a it's a decision that needed to be made. Can Chug Music, the management and label arm, stand on its own two feet? And so, if we were going to take that risk on, um, who's involved? And so that was a, a pretty open conversation with Michael about it. It's like, well, okay, is this going to be the next ten years of my life or twenty years of my life? And 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 what does that look like for me and my my future and my family and. Um, you know, it was a. In the end, it was a pretty easy deal to get done. Um, you know, with due consideration to all the support that that the Chug Entertainment side of the business had given us uh, for those that, that those early years, and um, you know, at the same time, I think Michael sees our partnership as being more than the sum of its parts, and um, you know, what he brings to the table, what I bring to the table, are, are different. And um, at the main thing, we the main thing we also thought about is like. What is the best for the continuity of the artists that we're that we're working in? Um, yeah, so in a roundabout way, it's easy if you have a good partner. Um, it wasn't so commercially minded. It was like, okay, what what's fair? How do we work out what's fair? And consider everything in that in, in that picture. Um, you know, there's an argument that I could have gone off and done my own thing, but that would have, you know, torn up years of of hard work with with Michael, and that was never really crossing my mind at the time. It was like, how can I make this? something that I'm really happy with and I'm really motivated and I think that's what Michael wanted as well is like how do how do we motivate each other to keep doing what we're doing which is working so um uh you know find a scenario that that makes sense for us all I remember that time when Shepard were just absolutely on fire the platinum records are coming in they were on every ad on tv they were all over the radio it was really hot and amazing especially the fact that we did it independently I sensed from you there was this underlying um, frustration that there was not greater support and embrace from the Australian music industry. Um, and I certainly noticed that, you know, it seemed to be kind of cool to hate Shepard at that time, right? And that was a really frustrating thing for you. Do you know what that was? And do you think it was because you stayed independent and you didn't have, 
you know, if you sign to Universal, Universal, what do I have sixty percent market share? So you don't have sixty percent of the Australian music industry, you know, championing them. What 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 do you put it down to? Oh, well, I mean, we had a lot of support as well. So there were, I think, you know, maybe a part of like tall poppy syndrome in Australia is is there. I think the style of music, um, you know, I think that the industry that we know and that go to big sound and you know hang around, they're all quite alternative, uh, alternative minded as well. So they saw this independent act and they went well that's not really indie is it it's like well it is because it's independent and and, and i think that there was just a little bit of um, people were surprised by the, their success and um you know maybe they didn't like the band stylistically but i think that they respected what they'd been able to achieve with commercial radio especially and um and their their touring growth and um the fact that the audience was out there ready to embrace it um but in terms of the backlash i mean you know artists are always the they always, you know, tend to focus on some of the negative comments that they might see, and um, you know, there, there are other artists successful at the moment that get a lot of that same kind of tall poppy syndrome. Like, well, we were just on the last episode, we were just talking to Regan Tones and I's manager about exactly. Tones and I going through it to an obscenely harsh scale right now. So, and you know, like Courtney Mike Barnett gets backlash. It's like people look at things that are successful and they're like, they don't understand it, so they they might attack it. And I think that there was a little bit of that with with Shepherd and. Um, you know, like um, a lot of nonsense came out as well at the time, um, you know, people making up silly stories about them and that kind of thing. So we had to be aware of the media's uh, opinion of them. But at the same time, I think their success spoke for itself and there was enough genuine true fans that were loving the music that we were able to at least navigate through it to the point where they were able to keep going and keep releasing great songs and, and being su- successful. Do you also think the sentiment of pop music has changed? Because I feel like it, pop music was really uncool and daggy for a long time and now it's cool to love the Veronicas. It's, you know, even although it might be tongue-in-cheek, it's fun to love Shannon Noll. You know, there's all <laughs> of these, like, I just feel like pop music is no longer, uh, no longer uncool. There was this one moment when... I think it was Mark Ronson did a collab with Bruno Mars yeah, and it got added to Triple J. And I can't even remember who the on-air presenter was, but they played the song for first time or one of the early times and got added. And they were like, and that was Mark Ronson and Bruno Mars. <laughs> the only time we'll ever be accepted to play Bruno Mars on air. Yeah. But with that song, Bruno Mars suddenly became cool. And like, yeah. I feel like pop music is now far more embraced than it was 10 years ago. Yeah, and I think throwback culture is a bit to do with it as well like the pop artists of the 80s and you know, like talking heads or something like that and now the 90s like they're, they're all pop artists and um you know kids when they have that that element of like calling back records from the 80s and 90s or the 2000s now um they're talking about pop music and so there's the nostalgia factor with artists like veronica's and shannon noel that it's cool to kind of be a bit you know ironic in that sense but i think it comes down to the music to be honest and, and the fans as well i think with triple j seeing the success of billy eilish and post malone on their station they realized that kids aren't necessarily segmenting themselves as alternative music fans or pop music fans they're just like okay i'm, I'm gonna listen to whatever's whatever's cool and i remember when um i think it was like nick jonas came out with something and you couldn't even you couldn't pick that it was a jonas brother um with this new song it's just they'd completely shifted over to like a more contemporary style of music so um, at the end of the day, I think the artists in that space have the ability to pivot, you know, when and if they see fit. And um, I kind of think 
good on radio and good on the fan base and Spotify for embracing that as well. Um, because if you stick to your guns too much, then you're going to lose the fans. And I think if Triple J's kept like a very anti-pop stance, um, then you know they'd be doing their audience a disservice and probably themselves a disservice. Um, but at the end of the day, the artists are the ones who are creating that music, and um, it's it's doing well for the fans and it's doing well for the for the stations that are playing it. What was it like to work with Scooter Braun on Shepherd? Yeah, it was a, it was a trip. Like he's very busy. Um, he, I remember getting a text from him at you know six in the morning, and it's like it's Scooter, call me. I'm like, what the, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> okay, what? Uh, yeah, and. Um, Number not saved in your phone, I imagine. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, I think his his approach is like he, he loves to do cool shit and like pick up stuff that's moving. Like he did it with size, you know, Shepard. And I think you know he saw the Jay Balvin thing moving and and um, uh, you know likes to be associated with these songs that he sees as being real breakthrough hits. I think that's a real calling card for him. Um, so you know, in that growth phase like he's he's very connected he's able to pick up the phone and speak to ellen or jimmy fallon or um he understands how to break a top end pop record at radio in the u.s which is a very complicated picture and costs a lot of money so in terms of being able to move the obstacles out of the way that we needed to get that investment from an international label to really push it properly at top 40 um he knew how to navigate that space Um, but at the same time the band was the band and we had to you know, continue to deliver music and and make sure that we were providing the infrastructure under it all, so that he could go and do that 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 thing. But it's a very specific skill set and something that I learned a lot, um, kind of being in that camp whilst that was all going on, and just seeing the way that the top operator in the world essentially um, you know thinks about and considers music and considers marketing and the things that are important from a fan base point of view, um, just helped to shift our focus. And and you know that's the carry over to city pop records in a way it's like well let's look at the way that scooter does it or dre does it or someone like that um it's all very song led it's all fan led if you don't have that backing it up then it's then it's hard to do anything you can be as creative or spend as much money as you like um but he always would refer back to do we have the right song and would build songwriting teams around the artist to make sure that we had more than enough songs to choose from so that we were going out there putting 10 out of 10 tracks into the market um, and I think that approach is the kind of thing that needs to happen more across the industry, generally speaking. Um, it's just it was just interesting to kind of like get a peek under the curtain and see what like someone like that at that top end of town is doing. What was the one thing you learnt from him? The the one thing that you just will carry with you for the rest of your career. He's he's very fearless, and he is all about doing cool shit. So if if it's if it doesn't feel cool, if it doesn't feel exciting, then he's not really interested. And I think a fan base responds to cool shit. So whatever that might, it might mean, post Malone with tattoos all over his face, or it might be some collab video or something that a, like a fan base is responding to. But he's always like, "How do we make it cool? How do we make it exciting?" Um, I think that's the big carryover now. It's like if we're at a juncture, we're like, "Which way should we go?" It's like, "Let's lean into something that's a bit exciting because that's going to get people interested. That's going to have." People have an emotional connection to it, um, feel something, if that makes sense. Um, so he's, he's all about that. And the other thing I'd say is um, the A&R is everything. And if you don't get that right, then you're kind of pushing 
pushing shit uphill for the lack of a better way to describe it. Um, so if, if you're not right there, if you don't do the time, if you don't get the artist in the studio writing hits, it's very hard to push an agenda if you're kind of working on songs that are that, that aren't quite there. What was that first phone call like? How did he pitch to you? Did you believe it was him? What was that conversation like on the initial phone call? Yes, yeah, it, it was weird. Like, it was you know, he was he talked a lot and told me, you know, what he thought I wanted to hear. And um, hang on, what does what does Scooter Braun say when he's trying to sell himself? It's like, bro, bro, I came across this song. Like, it's so great. Like, you know, bro, it's like we can do some like we can do all this cool shit. Like. So th- that was kind of it. It was like he was just excited and I think he knew that I knew that he, who he was so it was an easier conversation for him to have. Mm. Uh, but it, it wasn't a long phone call. It was kind of like I'm going to put you in touch with my people and we're going to have like blah, blah, blah. And he ended up flying some of us over to LA to hang out with him. And um, yeah, I mean, and everything was moving really quickly for us with the song and the band in Australia at that point as well. So it was about being able to quickly connect all the dots and make it, viable for him to get involved um in a in a way that was not going to hold it up because we had momentum and we didn't want to lose that so we tried to you know get rid of all the obstacles to actually make that happen and work out a deal and work out a partnership and and figure out how that would work um what do those commercial terms look like well he had a a percentage of the so he did a deal with universal who was our label for ex australia new zealand um atlantic wasn't it uh Universal and went through Republic in... Oh, in, Republic, yeah. sorry, yes. So the, the home label's Decker in the UK. The US partner was Republic. So Schoolboy, his label, did a deal with Republic, uh, 50-50, I believe, like a JV partnership. And he runs a lot of other artists like Ariana through through Republic as well. So he already had that infrastructure set up. So he basically said to Universal, look, I want to do this. I want to put it under Schoolboy. We can be a partner on it. And then on the management, we negotiated a percentage um, for... I think it was like ex Australia on the on the management commission as well. Was there any part of you that were worried you'd get pushed out? Oh, I mean, we also were very careful in, um, and this was this was something that we argued about for a couple of weeks, uh, making sure that all of his rights came through us, so that there was there wasn't a mechanism that he had to speak or to engage and and, and partner directly with the artist. So we made that very clear from the start that this runs via our agreement with the artist and you're not going to contract contract with them directly. So we just took that off the table straight away. Would it have been a deal breaker for you? Yeah, I think so. I think if if yeah, we might have done the label deal with him, but I think on the management side of things like we were very careful to not upset the apple cart there and we've, you know, had similar conversations with other bands over the time and we haven't been able to progress them because uh, you know, that other manager wanted to have the direct relationship, but I think I think it's too important um, to maintain that that relationship with the artist and to maintain that um, that authority, I guess, with respect to our agreements, um, because that's exactly what can happen. Someone can come in, take all the take all the credit for something that's that's moving, and then you know operate to to work their way out, or that maybe the band sees it a different way, or they see the success in America being all down to Scooter or someone like that. Um, and we just wanted to remove that temptation. Like, like it might have been a little bit of paranoia, but I, I don't think so. I think it was just a, a, a reasonable thing to offer. And if he was going to deliver what he was going to deliver, then there's no problem. Like, we, we all win and, and, there's, and he's growing the pie by more than the piece that he's taking away, mm. um, as a John Watson would say. Yep. Um, 
and uh, and then we're all happy. So I think building that, um, and we've done the same thing with Dre, for instance. It's like we've got mechanisms in there that, you know, if he does what he says he's going to do, um, then there's no problem. It's just you want those contracts to be in place uh, for the situation where something does go awry or the band changes their opinion or um, something along those lines. Like whatever whatever storms you can foresee in the future, we're kind of, you know, we're, we're cool with whatever happens. So just for clarity, Dre is Post Malone's manager. Yep, yep. Sorry, Dre London. He runs one of the funniest, best Instagrams <laughs> on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your deal with Dre? What's his involvement with Lime Cordial and yourself? Yeah, so he's a he's a partner um, with us, at least um, as it stands, um, on the label and the management uh, side of things. So he's got a company with Post, which is called London Cowboys. He partnered with us for our rights that we have in Lime Cordial. Uh, ex Australian New Zealand as well. Was that Post Malone led or Dre led? Um, I think a bit of both. Like th- that story is a crazy one as well. Like I got a text at again like six in the morning um, from the band from from uh, Dre. Just my Instagram DMs. I'm like, who the hell's this? Like I, I didn't really know much about him. Um, and and yeah, kind of dug a bit further. But again, that was something that we moved really quickly on. Is like he texted me on Monday and then. The next day we were having lunch and... Uh, he was in Australia? So he was in Brisbane. Um, he'd come across the band via a fan. And he kind of said, what's your favourite band at the moment? And she played Lime Cordial. Uh, and then for the rest of the night, all they would listen to, like a well, post he wanted to listen to was Lime Cordial. <laughs> and then, you know, Ollie like from Lime Cordial, his DMs filled up and my DMs filled up. And um, I was like, all right, well, this is weird, but let's see where it goes. And... So we went and had lunch with him. He was a really cool guy. And then we like went to the next three like post Malone shows in Sydney because they flew down from Brisbane to Sydney. Hung out, went to the after party, played beer pong with Posty and his crew, and um, and then Dre flew up to uh, Kingscliff near Byron Bay and um, and uh, saw the show and saw what we were actually talking about. Saw like a sold out show of twelve hundred people, and um, he was just losing his shit, like sending messages to all his mates back home and. Um, and yeah, like similar to the scooter thing, it's like these guys are very busy and they um, and they operate a million miles an hour. So we needed to take advantage of that enthusiasm when it was there. So we were able to pretty quickly turn around an agreement and figure out what that looks like. And the band and I flew to to the states and we did that deal. And yeah, we've been kind of working together since. So uh, Lime Cordial going to end up on a post record or on a post tour? We'll try. That's for damn sure. Like <laughs> they've they've worked together on a few things. Um, like I know that like they've been sending songs back and forward, and um, you know Post Posty comes on the calls every now and again, um, which is kind of funny. We're actually before COVID like really hit. Um, the next the next day we're going to go up to Utah to Posty's ranch and shoot guns and play Call of Duty, I think, but um, maybe write some songs in there and <laughs> and uh, and hang out. Um, and, uh, yeah, that would have been cool, but we've still been trying to do that, uh, you know, from a distance as well. So can you tell me, Andrew, if I'm an artist who has written some really cracker songs and has got nothing else, how do I turn what I have into a career? I think if you have cracker songs, you kind of need an indication that they really are cracker songs. Um, because every artist thinks that the first, you know, 10 songs they write are 10 out of 10. Um, and, you know, how to get that feedback is hard. Like, um, you know, you know go to, going to industry or going to, to friends is, is 
can be a good indication or producers can be a good indication but like assuming you do have a collection of really great songs that you're excited to put out i think how you present to market in that initial instance is going to really help define what happens next um so i'm a big fan of just making sure your press photo is is absolute gold it's exciting it doesn't just it's not just four bros against a wall like looking off into the distance it's something that's iconic something that looks like it could be on a on a billboard potentially and I think that's worth the, in, the extra investment. Like, and it doesn't have to be much. Like, it could be 500 a 1000 bucks to get a, a really great press photo with a good photographer. And I also think a visual element to the song, like when it's uploaded to YouTube or Instagram or somewhere, um, is important because that's how people are consuming it. But provided you've got the music, then if you can get that emotional connection when s- someone comes across it for the first time and they might go, fuck, that's really cool or that's really interesting or that's really heartfelt or you know being able to being able to shorten the distance between your music and their heart to is is kind of the the mechanism of a music video or a or a or a cool photo or you know in reality a live show they get a really deep understanding of what you're trying to what your message is where the connection to a fundamental human condition is so you kind of try and lessen that distance as much as, as possible um so that means presenting presenting well. And that might mean partnering with a team of professionals that have runs on the board. And uh, and so when you go to market, you can say, I've got this you know, top agent, I've got this top manager, I've got this top label, whatever it might be. That legitimizes, that, that gives them a, a bit of context or uh, framing for what's coming next. So they're more open to receive, um, you know, to, to, to hear it in a favorable light. Like if someone like Regan or Jaden or something like that is taking it in, then people might go, okay, this is this is going to be legit. Like they're working on it. Um, but if you're just doing it yourself, I think the main thing is getting the visuals right, and so it it instantly draws the eye and draws attention, so people can properly, you know, figure out whether it's a whether it's a banger or not. So I hear all that, but then I can't help but think about uh, this. You manage the Griswolds. Are they still together? Or are they broken up? Yeah, they're still. We we stopped managing them at the end of last year. Um, but yeah, it's pretty much a Chris, the lead singer-led project now. Uh, he's in America. So when you were managing the Griswolds early days and they were just firing on all the festivals, radio galore, it was a cracker of a record. Mm. Amazing band. Um, they started with no press shot. Like there was no photo of them on the internet. There was... The it's, not, it's not true. Like So <laughs> when they came to me, it's yeah. like they just wanted me to do PR on it because I had the PR company at the time. Yeah, but they presented me with a video clip that was ready to go, and stills from that video clip where they were like chucking like like coloured powder in the air, and it was it was that visual that actually got me hooked. And yeah, right. the song was a banger as well. But they present like, it was very simple. They went, "Here's our two songs. Here's the clip. It looks fucking great." They invested money into it. You could tell, and here's the press photo. And that was like straight away I could go, "Okay, I can do this. It's, it's not too. It's not going to take me six months of development trying to." figure out what your image is or how you're going to do it or find a like they came ready to go and it was an easy thing to say yes to at the time and i think it's it was like that foresight from them was the thing that really helped to accelerate their career at that point that's super interesting i remember them not having a photo on their triple j on earth page for a while and then i remember chris telling me the story of triple j emailing them asking for a photo because i wanted a story (laughs) and him replying saying that he didn't have one yeah, all they had was stills from the clip, to be honest. But um, so there was no like proper press photos yeah. per se, but there was still that visual imagery that Got was it. really compelling. Um, so I'm testing my memory now. Maybe it's wrong, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay, interesting. So I have to ask you before 
before we finish today. The Lee Parsons Twitter beef. You um, have to. <laughs> have to. have to ask you. So I remember when uh, the, you, you went back and forth to the CEO of Ditto about uh, an artist you signed yeah. um, and Mason Watts. And he was really upset that you signed the artist and he thought you poached him and there was a lot of exchange. Firstly, I want to ask you about what actually happened with that commercially and did you steal the artist? The second thing I want to ask you is, or tell you even, is that when the Industry Observer wrote wrote about the Twitter beef, my phone blew up from everyone on the industry asking if it was real because people thought it was so out of character for you to just go at someone like that. Can you imagine imagine why was that creative and cynical to like like engineer the whole thing i think it would have been <laughs> one for the so, ages so firstly what happened uh well i mean i just woke up uh on whenever that friday morning and um a text from mates of mine saying have you seen this like this dude is like calling you out on twitter for like poaching this artist so what the fuck like so i went on twitter and he'd gone to such an effort to tag me because he got my handle wrong to start with and kind of didn't really didn't really process it at the time, but I kind of just wrote back and said, dude, you're a joker or whatever I said. And um, it's not true. Um, and then, you know, the exchange started happening. But, you know, to answer your question, I mean, it's it's not grey. It's black and white. Like Ditto had a one-song distribution deal with the artist. Um, and we um, put a management and a label proposal together for him. And, um, you know, the his argument, I think, was... Uh, that they introduced us, so therefore we should have, you know, kept it with Ditto, or we should have done every effort to like not. I don't know if they had any management intention to, to you know, with their management arm that they've just started. Um, but they did, you know, suggest at the time like maybe Andrew would be a good manager for you. But I didn't even see him play. Like I was sitting out the back of a bar at Big Sound, and they'd just finished their showcase, and they came out, and we were all just kind of catching up and. And he was from Toowoomba, or I'm from Toowoomba, so we we connected on that, and he sent me some songs, and it's kind of where it went from there. Um, and to, uh, on the other side of things as well, it's like we had no choice but to um, to take it to a different distributor because the, our partnership with Believe means that like we've got an exclusive distribution agreement with them. So despite you know but you know the potential of wanting to keep it there, we didn't have a choice. So I was pretty. I can understand the disappointment that, you know, they'd released the first single and they might have wanted to, you know, keep releasing more more stuff from him. But at the end of the day, like a distribution agreement and a label agreement are two different things. Like one, you're just distributing the song. The other thing the other thing that we're doing is we're investing in his masters and creating, you know, content and, and putting money into marketing. It's two different agreements. And if they wanted to come and offer him a label deal, then they had every opportunity to do so. So I think Lee was just trying to you know, be a hero for the indie community. And, you know, since I, since that all went down, like I've kind of looked into his history with Twitter beefs as well and it's not short. Uh, I think he likes to kind of, you know, huff and puff a little bit and, you know, that's that's part of his MO. So, um, you know, in hindsight, maybe I shouldn't have bitten as hard as I, bitten as hard as I did. Um, well, but, I don't know about that because yeah. a few people... Um call me about it and they were like fuck we didn't know andrew had that much gusto <laughs> they just didn't expect i reckon he called me at the wrong like wrong like time of the morning or something like that it was just um you know like but you know like when someone calls your credibility in question not just mine but like chuggies and everyone else as well then it's kind of like a bully coming in and and punching in the nose do you just 
just cop it or do you stand up for yourself? And um, like I said, maybe I could have been a little bit less colourful with my language, but fuck it, like, you know. (laughs) I could have been better with my language, but fuck it. (laughs) (laughs) Andrew, what is the biggest mistake you've made in your career and what can we learn from it? Uh, I think someone asked me this the other day. Um, I think holding on to uh, relationships that aren't working um, for too long. I think it takes a lot of time and resource and emotional um, stamina to you know to stick with artists through thick and thin. But at some point, the relationship is just is just not there anymore. Or you know you're not the best manager. Or you're not the best label for an artist. And I think. Um, or you know, this also applies to to staff and to to relationships with other parts of the industry. I think I've always erred on the side of hoping it will work out in the end, but you also don't want to be the last rat on a sinking ship either. Either, and I think um, uh, you know, at some point, you have to make a commercial decision for the good of your company as well. Um, and holding onto artists and investing a lot of time and human resources into into trying to get them over the line. Um, can just be a, a far too, uh, you know, far too great of a burden on everyone uh, if it's just not working out. And I think finding that time to to kind of reflect and you know, run the numbers and work out whether you're really, uh, if it's just a vanity project versus something that's commercially viable. I think that's that's a reality that that people in the industry need to need to take and. I see it all the time with with other managers as well. They're they're pushing the artists and pushing the artists and pushing the artists, and there's just no indicators that it's working. Um, so as a result, like I've been in situations where, um, because there's because it's not working, you get you know all the blame in some in some instances or um, part of the blame, and um, and uh, you know you you're working extra hard to try and make it work, and you you know got to the point where. I'm neglecting other clients that are maybe more commercially viable, or just pushing myself to the to, to the edge of the limit, and really suffering from some, you know, pretty hardcore burnout. And you know, there's also elements of emotional manipulation and all that kind of stuff in there as well, which is hard to hard to deal with. But um, I think that's if I was to look back at it, it's probably like several mistakes like that I've made. Um, perhaps biting off more than I can chew, but. Um, you know, with that, there's, you've also got the success stories where we have held on for a long period of time with artists and gone through that um, that really rough period and they've come out uh, on top. So um, I think finding time for reflection, and I've definitely been guilty of not finding time for reflection uh, in the past, and that's something that personally I've suffered for and I think our company suffered for that as well. Andrew, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.